All right, so uh, if you have your Bibles, we'll get right into the Word. Uh, you can turn to Matthew 13. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 and 45. I guess everyone's got their Bibles on their phones. I don't hear any pages flipping. <laughs> so we've reached the new age. All right, I'll just go ahead and read it. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Okay, um, I'll just say a quick prayer before we begin. Uh, if you bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you uh, that, God, you are so worth it. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of all our praise. You are worthy of our lives, and you are worth living for. And so, Father, I pray that today, as we look into the Scripture, won't you open up our eyes and show us a new side of yourself. Show us a, a new facet of who you are. Re- reveal things in new ways to us, O oh God. I pray that... Uh, old truths that we've known would, would come alive to us in new ways today, and that, God, your word, living and active, would cut to our hearts, O oh God, and may we be convicted to, to continue in a lifestyle of repentance and continue to turn to you in all that we do. Father, we, um, we just come to you humbly and ask uh, that you come and have your way tonight. Uh, yes, yes, we thank, thank you. you. We lift up all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, I want to start with the story. When I was in college, 2004, I was a freshman. 2004. That was 14 years ago, if you can believe that. Uh, 2004 was the same year Facebook had just started. I didn't grow up with Facebook, like many of you probably have. Uh, I still remember my first uh, profile picture. Uh, Aaron, if you want to put that up. This is, this is my very first... <laughs> Yes, that was 14 years ago. That, in that picture, I'm, I'm playing the guitar, obviously, and I'm, I'm, I think I was playing Redemption Song by Bob Marley. Bob, Mar- Bob Marley was my favorite singer back then. Still is in some, some ways, but... Um, anyway, I just shown this for kicks. There's no, no real point to this, but... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so that was 14 years ago. I remember... Um, oh, the reason why I bring this up... You can put that slide down now. Thank <laughs> Um, yes, that was my first profile picture, but I also remember the very first quote I put on my Facebook wall. Do you guys remember? Uh, I think they still have that feature. You can put like your favorite quote. You can put all these things about yourself, right? So even back then, they, one of the first features they had was you could put your favorite quote like in the, in the field. And so this was mine. It was, if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. Oh... Deep, right? One junkie Paul. Do you guys know who said that? Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's what he said. And I meant it when I put it up there, and I still do. But obviously, take it with a grain of salt because, you know, that second part, fit to live, I don't know uh, how accurate that is. You know, you could break it down. But, you know, you take it with a grain of salt. Uh, you get the gist of what he's saying. He's saying if you haven't found something worth living for, you're basically not living. Right. Um, well, there's another quote that kind of balances this out. 
It goes like this. The mark of the immature man is that he wants to die nobly for a cause, while the mark of a mature man is that he wants to live humbly for one. Okay? Uh, that was from Wilhelm Steckel, an Austrian psychologist. You guys know how I knew about this quote? Someone commented on that quote with this quote. <laughs> so I was quickly humbled. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah. Um, you get a... You get, you, get, you get the, the idea, idea of what, what these, the, the, the first quote means. It's like, basically, if you haven't found something worth living for or dying for, then you're not really living. Um, let's look at the text one more time, okay? I just want to read it one more time. It's a short one. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Okay, I'll, I'll just stop there. The second one's pretty similar. Um, so you see in, in, the, in, these, uh, in these parables, there's like this sense of urgency, right? This sort of desperation that you see in, in the man, in the men in, in each of the parables. Like if I had a pearl or if I found a pearl, I don't think I'd go and sell everything, right, just to buy it. Right? It's kind of, kind of weird to think about. But clearly this is a parable that is trying to convey a message about value, right? So yesterday, uh, a few of us went out to the VR cafe room. Who was there? Anybody? Who was there? Sungi, Sally, Aaron. Yeah, it was a fun time. Um, before we went out to the actual cafe, or sorry, to the VR room, we were chilling at a cafe, and we were just kind of making small talk, and we started playing this game, um, Would You Rather, right? And um, on this, uh, in this game, you, you could ask these questions like, would you rather go on a vacation in Europe or would you go on a relaxing Caribbean island, right? Just like funny, you know, brain-tingling kind of questions. Would you rather be able to fly or read people's minds? Just, just out of curiosity, would you rather be able to read people's minds or fly? Raise your hand if you'd rather fly. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. Uh, raise your hand if you'd rather read people's minds. One, two, three. Okay. Yeah, I think most people would choose fly. Because, you know, you don't want to hear everyone's thoughts. That's kind of, you know, you don't want to hear everything. Everything. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, so anyway, um, I bring this up because it's, it's kind of like this question, right? Um, what would you rather do? Or the question that we often ask each other, that brain-teasing question, what would you do with a million dollars? I guess a million isn't that much these days, so let's say billion. What would you do with a billion dollars? What would you do if you won the lottery? Right? So in the first century Jewish culture, right, that's the kind of question that they would have been asking. They wouldn't say, what would you do with the lottery? Their question would have been, what would you buy a field for? What would you go and run out and buy a field for? Right? That's the kind of, like, you know, brain-teasing kind of question they would be asking. Right? They don't ask, what would you do with a lottery? They would be asking, you know, what would you go and buy a field for? Right? And could you imagine, like, you know, Peter and, and some dude named... Uh, Simon, son, son of Arjun. Yeah, yo, Simon, Simon. What would, what would you buy a field for? You know, he's like, oh, I'd buy a field for a, um, a, I don't know, a diamond and a pearl. And then they'd be sitting there like, ah, oh, yeah, all the things I could buy with it, you know? <laughs> so anyway, uh, obviously, he, this parable is talking about value, right? So in Matthew, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom, right, is a very broad topic. It entails a lot of different things. And I think we can easily understand the kingdom of heaven to mean simply our relationship with God, right? We can boil it down to that because God is king, right? And the kingdom then is all things related to the king or God, right? So uh, it can entail heaven itself, kingdom of heaven, or 
It could also just mean the ways of God or Christianity in a broad sense, right? So essentially, when God talks about the kingdom of God, we could understand it to mean our relationship with God, okay? Uh, because kingdom is a very broad topic. So this parable in particular is talking about the understanding of value of the treasure, right? Jesus compares the kingdom to this treasure in a field or a pearl, like a million dollars, billion dollars. It is so valuable that when it's discovered, the seller, the finder, sells everything in order to have it. Okay? So I want to explore this idea of it, this, uh, this idea of value and worth, and our relationship with God, the kingdom of God, um, value and our relationship with God. Okay? So I made this little graphic, uh, if, if you can pull it out. Okay. This is, this is a little cool thing to help us walk through this sermon. Okay? Uh, so just to give you some visual... Uh, representation. Uh, so, if anyone who's listening on podcast, I don't know if you'd be listening, but uh, <laughs> what I'm showing, <laughs> what I'm showing is a two by two graph of God and man. So it's like it, it overlaps. It's like two by two, four squares. Okay. Anyway, back on topic. Okay. So let's first explore this this top left square. It's God by by God by God God. God by God God one God. <laughs> okay. God. How God sees God. Okay. Um, how does God see himself? Well, God is perfect. He's omniscient, so he sees all, and he is perfect in his knowledge, right? He doesn't see things in a distorted way. He sees things as they are. God is perfectly good. He is love. He was love from the beginning. He's holy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in perfect union from the beginning. He is self-sustained. He has no cause before him. He himself is the first cause. You know when... People act in a way that is like prideful and, and self-righteous and self-aggrandizing, self-promoting, you know, selfish, right? It doesn't sit well with us, right? Do, do you guys like such people? Probably not, right? Uh, it, just, it doesn't sit right. With, there's this innate sense that something's off with this person if they act in such a way. You know why? Because it's wrong, <laughs> right? Because it's not right for us to be so, so selfish like the world revolves around us, right? But God can. God actually is the one, the only one who is deserving of that kind of um, selfishness in quotes, if you can call it that. Um, he is deserving of all worship. Right? He is rightfully the object of worship, of all worship. God is jealous for our worship, our love, and devotion. He's jealous for it, and rightfully so. Do you know why? Because he's God. <laughs> right? He deserves everything. He deserves all our worship. And, and no one can say anything against that. That's who he is. He deserves everything. He deserves, he, he deserves it all. Right? Psalm 147 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. How good it is to praise, or how good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise him. In Luke chapter 19, at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the people cried out to Jesus in praise. Right? They were saying, like, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, uh, welcoming him in, singing praises. You know what happened? The Pharisees, they told Jesus to rebuke the crowd. And you know what Jesus said? He said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Okay? So God is worthy of worship. That is how he sees himself. Okay? And he's right. He is supremely worthy. Okay? So let's look at the, the next box. Let's, uh, let's 
Can we go to the, okay, here we go. Uh, how does man see God? How does man see God? In a perfect world, in a perfect world, in a sinless world, uh, our view of God would be completely untainted and it would be in line in complete agreement with how God sees himself, that first box. Okay? But it's not, right? We know that. Uh, if we were in a perfect world, we'd be living out in complete faith, in complete union with God. Uh, we'd be praising him with our everything. Right? But we often fall short of that. We have doubts. We don't trust God perfectly. We often try to put our own standards on him. Right? As if we were somehow in the position of God. Right? Saying things like, that's not fair. How do you say that's not fair to God? Like, he's God. You know? He can't do that. Right? Um, we don't trust in God's power to save. We don't trust in his power to heal and redeem. Right? We often think that our circumstances are so great that we are in despair and hopelessness. We may not say it, but often our emotions uh, convey that. Right? We often create idols without even knowing sometimes. We turn to things that don't satisfy. We turn to promotions, grades, drugs, friends, pornography, food, Instagram, Facebook, whatever it may be. Right? We turn to things and, and put it above God because... Ultimately, sometimes we just don't see the worth and value of God as we should in a clear way, in the way that we should see him. We think that these other things are somehow more shiny, more valuable, or, you know, more, more satisfying. Um, C.S. Lewis, I wish I had gotten this quote, but C.S. Lewis talks about this uh, how we are often so easily, too easily satisfied. He compares us to a child playing in the mud when there's a table set before him with like all this fine dining food and he's just playing in the mud and he's satisfied with that. And you're like, come on, kid. You know, there's better stuff for you out there. And he's like eating mud pies. It's like, ah, you know? Um, and that's kind of the way it is with us. We often find things so valuable and shiny when they are just worthless compared to knowing God. So we fall into misconceptions uh, about God, um, or sometimes that he doesn't even exist, right? Sometimes we get so hurt that we just start to deny his existence, right? In short, we do not value God rightly, okay? And, you know, obviously that is the result of sin. And so, as a result, how do we see ourselves? Let's go to this box. How does man see man? Well, um... We, we know that there is sin, right? There's no denying it. We look at history, there's, there's been all kinds of messed up things. There's no way we can work around it except that there is such a thing as sin, right? We see, how do we see ourselves? We see the gunk within us. We are self-deprecating, self-hating. Um, you know, we, we are so low sometimes and we, um, we become so, um, Oh, what's the word? You know, we, we look down on ourselves, right? We, we lower ourselves below what we are. Or on the other hand, right, we value ourselves too much. We're prideful. And we are contemptuous of our neighbors, right, our brothers. We are lustful, greedy, easily angered, right? We strive and strive to cover up our own sense of worthlessness. We seek approval from our friends, teachers, parents. We don't understand our own worth. And some of us, as I said, tend to overvalue and some of us tend to undervalue. So we end up either being prideful or insecure. 
Okay? So these are kind of the two extremes that we go on. We view ourselves in a very distorted way. Right? All right, so I just want to go over a few examples just to kind of illustrate this point. But, like, let's say... Imagine you're a college student. I mean, you are college students, but... uh, (laughs) Imagine you are a college graduate. Actually, some of you are college graduates, too. Imagine... Okay, just imagine a college graduate. uh, A prideful graduate, someone who overvalues himself, his his sense of worth in his graduation, uh, will look at his achievement of graduation and say, I've made it. I have nothing else to work for. He feels entitled to getting a job and will have no room to learn. And it will only be a matter of time before his failures will crush him, crush his sense of identity, and he will ignore and blame everything else, everyone and everything else besides himself, because he was blinded by, by his pride. Such a person is not teachable and will eventually fail from lack of humility to understand that he has to learn. Because let's face it, the things he learned in college will be outdated very quickly. Right? Now an insecure graduate will be crippled by fear. That's the other, uh, that's the other way you can be in error. Uh, he won't try because of a fear of failure. He'll be scared of being found out of how little he knows compared to the experts in his field. Right. So, so what's, what's the right, right response? response? What is the, the right, right way to look at yourself as a college graduate? graduate? I think the right, right response is to celebrate, celebrate first. first. Celebrate your graduation, graduation right? right? Because you, you made, made it there. there. But, but that's, that's it. it. You just graduated. You didn't, you know, become the president. You just graduated college. Okay? But you also have to understand that there's so much more to grow and learn in. Because otherwise, you will block yourself from being humble enough to learn and to, and to grow. Okay, so, so there's that kind of, that, that tension between humility and pride. Okay, well, let's take marriage as an illustration. I think the only, there's only two married people in here. <laughs> so, but uh, I'm sure they would agree. But uh, let's, let's, let's take a look at this example. I can't speak from experience. I'm just, you know, just, just guessing, really. <laughs> but hopefully they'll change. Uh, pray for me. Pray. Uh, okay, so look at marriage. Uh, a prideful spouse is someone who will, after getting married, stop showing any love because they won. Right? They won the game of relationships. I'm married now. I have no nothing more to do. Right? Uh, game over. Done. Nothing. Ha! You're my wife. You're my you're my husband. I don't need to do anything to show you my love because you already love me. You know. Um, On the other hand, an insecure spouse will bend over backwards out of fear of not being valued as a spouse. This person will have no sense of self-worth and will become a slave to the other spouse. Okay, so these are two extremes as an example. But a a rightful way to view marriage is to understand that wedding is the beginning, right? Is that right? (laughs) <laughs> I'm looking at the married people. <laughs> it's just the beginning. Maybe not the beginning, but you know, it's the beginning of your covenant relationship. Um, yeah, it, you have to work to get there, but you also can't just stop there. You have to, I mean, you've already got it. You already know that you're, you're married for life, but you still have to work out that, uh, that part of showing love to say, oh, um, 
you are my only one on this earth, you know? Uh, you can't just not show them love, right? You can't just say, here's our marriage certificate. Look at it. Look at it. <laughs> you owe me a life of <laughs> being with me forever. No, you know, there is none of that. You, you have to show love. Okay, let me figure out where I'm at here. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. You know what? Um, note to self, number your pages when you're writing a sermon. <laughs> oh, man. So new to this. <laughs> I'm almost about to pull uh, one of those, uh, go go say hi to like five neighbors mid-sermon. Oh, man, that's bad. That's really bad. <laughs> oh, man, okay. Where are we? I'm struggling here. You can cut this part of the podcast, right? <laughs> you, you can, you can. I'll show you how. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's let's continue. I think I found my spot. So now let's let's go to the last let's go to the last box. Let's look at how God sees us. Okay. Well, the truth is that you know some of our you know those those perceptions of ourselves aren't wrong. Okay, some of those perceptions aren't wrong. We are pretty wretched. We all have sinned. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is there. God is holy. And God is omniscient. So he knows. Right? He knows when we sin. He knows that we've sinned. He knows that we fall short. So how dare we come to God with our sin? How, uh, how can we relate to a God who is perfect? I mean, we, we can't ignore that we're sinful and neither can God. Right? He sees it all. The sin is real. There's no way around it. Our sins have put us in eternal debt. Eternal debt. Because when you're dealing with an eternal being, such as God, our sins separate us from him eternally. In short, we deserve hell. Right? We deserve hell. And as much as it's easy for us to judge, I think the only ones we can really judge with complete accuracy is ourselves. And when we look into ourselves, we, we know that we are not perfect. So, how can we pay this eternal debt? Well, praise be to God that he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross. See, the cross is the payment that satisfies this debt, this, this eternal debt that we could never pay. The cross is the way by which we come to God. I want us to revisit the text that we're looking at today. Let's just, if you have your Bible open, let's, um, I'll, I'll just read it. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Okay, I'm going to read it one more time. Listen again. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. When I first read this parable, I mean, I've read, read, this, read this parable many, many times. I always thought it meant that the kingdom of heaven is like when a person who responds to the gospel 
is suddenly on fire for God because they're completely sold out to Jesus. Right? And, and that's not a bad reading of the text. I think that's, that's like a very plain reading. But then I read it again, and here I see the gospel. See, the man in the parable can be us, but he can also be God. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven, like I said, is can be thought of as our relationship with God. And if our relationship with God is like a, a treasure hidden in a field, then it can be a man who is us, Responding to God, but it can also be God himself coming to find this treasure. See, God found us hidden from him. Then in his joy, he went and sold all he had. All he had, meaning he gave his everything or he gave up his most prized possession, his son. And bought that field with the treasure. The treasure, us. So if you look at this, the gospel is contained within these verses. It parallels John 3.16. I'll read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Can you put up that slide? Oh, um, here we go. Oh, you can't really see the colors, but um, I highlighted it here. So, so if you look here, in the Matthew verse, kingdom of heaven is in blue. We have eternal life in John 3.16. A field parallels with, for God so loved the world. When a man found it, for God so loved the world, sold all he had, gave his one and only son. Right. Yeah. So when I when I read this, it, it really hit me strong. Like, oh my gosh, this. Yeah, it's this. This parable is about us, but it's also about God. So this parable again, it speaks of uh, the urgency, the sense of value and desire for something. God's desire and love for us is real. It is so strong. See, there was a real cost for God. In Matthew 26, verses 36 to 45, uh, Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, I'm going to just turn to it. If you, if you can also turn to it, you can. In Matthew 26, you don't have to turn to it if you can't. I'll just read it for us. Okay, Matthew 26, verse 36. I'll start from verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My sorrow is overwhelmed with sorrow. Oh, sorry. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch? With me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. So 
But listen to Jesus in that passage. He says, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. What is this cup? What is this cup he's talking about? Well, in Isaiah 51, verse 17, it, it points it out for you. It's the wrath of God. Simply put, it is the wrath of God, the cup of wrath. It represents wrath and separation from God, essentially hell. What is Jesus doing here when he says this? What is he doing? He's weighing the cost of salvation. He's literally sitting there weighing it. He's taking this cup in his hand and he's saying, is there any other way? Is there any other way for this to happen without me having to do this? Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We deserve death. We deserve separation from God. But he paid that cost in our stead. And that's what he was weighing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6 says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. Jesus paid the cost for our salvation, our reconciliation with God. So then, now, how does God see us? He no longer sees our sin, but he sees his son, Jesus. He sees us as perfect. He gave us his perfection. Jesus took on our imperfection and put his perfection on us. Okay, so if you can go back to that. That, that graph, the other one. Okay. So we, we kind of made a little journey this way. Um, but let's, let's go back. Let's, let's start from there again. What does the Bible say? On this side of the cross, we, once we are redeemed, um, we are, as Psalm 139 says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay, this is how God sees us. He has set eternity in the hearts of men. Ecclesiastes 3.11 He has set eternity in the hearts of men. Have you ever thought about what that meant? So what are we? Are we merely the, the aggregation of thoughts in our heads? Are we purely biological? What is consciousness? You ever think about these things? No, no philosophy majors up in here? <laughs> Am I the only one? <laughs> uh, Oh uh, yeah, so some of you have heard me talking about this. Uh, recently, I've been watching a show on Netflix called Black Mirror. Anybody watch that? No, it's not. It's uh, it's a really good, well done show, but it's it's got some like pretty unnecessary sex scenes. So just uh, you know, just warning you, okay? If you if you shouldn't watch that, don't watch it. Um, Self control. Um, anyway, it it's it's a really well done show, and it's each episode it stands alone as its own movie, and the the whole thing is basically about the future. It's it's a futuristic dystopian kind of uh, TV show. So it talk, talks about uh, all these things that could go wrong in the future, or, or right, or however you want to look at it. But basically, it's, it's a social commentary. Um, so in some of the episodes, you have people being uploaded into a hard drive, like their consciousness, right? Or they, they, you know, they do the file transfer of their mind, their entire mind, into a teddy bear, Right, because their body is about to die, and they want to keep living with, and they want to live with their daughter. So they'll like tell the daughter, "Oh, the mommy's living in the teddy bear, and she'll respond if you, you know." And then, and then they have all these like crazy things that happen. And then they even have this episode where they they um, they they take someone's consciousness, and and she's about to die, so she puts 
she's put into her husband's mind. And so they're both sharing the body and they're like having conversation in, in his head. I mean, it's a cool idea, but it's, you know, that's like, are we just that? Are we just a consciousness with a body? Is that all we are? Could we replicate or download a mind onto a hard drive? Right? And for those of, you know, for, for people who are materialists, physicists, right, who have no room for God or spirituality, and they say that the brain is itself the mind, ultimately they have to say, yes, you can. You can download your mind onto a hard drive because there's nothing besides your, your connections in your mind, right? Um, but we got to be pretty sure, we got to be firm, right? We have to be firm about our beliefs on this matter uh, because the day is actually quickly approaching when, when technology will catch up to this. And I think we're pretty close. Uh, we're getting a lot closer than most people realize where you might have to confront that question. Would you, would you download your mind onto a hard drive and, and live forever, in quotes, right? Um, yeah, believe it or not, there are people working on this. There are people that are actually trying to do this. Look it up. I'm not, I'll stop talking about that. But um, yeah, are we just our minds plus a body? Is that all we are? No, I, uh, that is not how God made us. God made us fearfully and wonderfully. It's kind of a paradox. It's beautiful. We're sinful, but loved by God. Flawed, but infinitely lovable. Because infinite God loves us. And that is so humbling. He has indeed set eternity in our hearts. And what does that mean? I think it's a, it's a really cool thing to think about. Because, you know, we are capable of amazing things. We are not like any other creature on this earth. We can contemplate consciousness. Isn't that cool? Like, that's so meta. You can think about your thinking about something, you know? Uh, we can contemplate eternity. What is eternity? What the heck is eternity? But we can understand what that is, you know? We can contemplate and relate to God. And most of all, God deposits His Holy Spirit within us when we are born again. Our human frame is magnificent. There's no creature like us. We are made... Uh, in the image of God. And we are so much more than just what there is. God has placed in, you know, eternity into our hearts. So, what happens next? It follows then that when we let God redeem our lives, our relationship with others and with ourselves change. Okay, uh, So we are able to see God. Or sorry, God, God sees us. And now we are able to see ourselves in a redeemed way. Okay, we're going, we went this way, now we're going right back. Okay? It follows that we can uh, now make reconciliation. Right? We are, no, uh, we are no longer slaves, but sons. We are, we are able to understand these truths, and, and it makes all the difference. We're no longer lost, but found. We are made secure, whole, and clean. We return to the love which we were made for. Our lives are made complete. Now, I want to go back up to here, or back to this way. How does man see God now? Well, um, if we may, let's turn to Matthew, Matthew 26, or I guess we were already there, but let's go to verse 6 to 13. This is a story of the woman who brings the alabaster jar of perfume. And she uh, pours it all over Jesus in, in an act of 
of extravagant worship. So I'll, I'll just go ahead and read it. Verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I'm not bringing this up just because it says it will be told in memory of her. <laughs> but really, um, uh, you know, at New Philly, the church that, that New, uh, Mace is under, one of our core values had, has been, had been um, extravagant worship. Extravagant worship. And we often refer to this verse. The woman worshipped Jesus extravagantly to such a degree that the disciples were offended. They were offended. They said, uh, why this waste? You could have done so much with that money. You know, that, that perfume was super expensive. It was like, I don't... I don't know exactly, but I think it was like years of wages, right? It was not a, a small amount. It was not your typical, you know, Gucci perfume or whatever. It was, it was super expensive, you know? Um, he says, Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Could you imagine that? Someone's pouring perfume on you and you're just like, she's doing a beautiful thing, <laughs> you know? Like, that's what he's, he was doing, you know? And interestingly, what you see here is the closest thing I think we'll ever see to man seeing God as God seeing God. You see that? How God sees God is perfect. The closest we could ever see God is something like how God sees God. And this is the closest thing that we see in Scripture, I think, of, of a person doing that. Uh, Luke also gives an account of this story in chapter 7. Uh, he, ge- he gives a little bit more detail, so I'm going to turn to it really quickly. In Luke 7, verse 36, if I can turn to it. Okay, I'll start from verse 44. This, this part's a little different. Uh, Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them from her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves much little okay here is someone who really understood the value of what she was getting she understood the value the devaluation of what sin does and the value of the redemption she had seen how far she had fallen as a person so this is how we see god and and view his worth right or this is how we should see god and view his worth that, that we have fallen from such a height, but we're redeemed. 
he is worthy of praise indeed. Right? I think there's a reason why this example is always shown as part of the gospel is that this woman understood that that distance, that impossible distance that was paid for her, that debt. The impossible pardon that was bought that enables us to give God the worship to his name. So here we are, back to the parable. Um, the parable of the treasure and the pearl. Now we can read this with the interpretation that the man is us. Understanding what treasure we have in Christ, we now respond with the extravagance displayed by the man in the parable and the woman who per- poured perfume on Jesus. Right, Not because we want to earn it, but because we understand the value of it. Okay. So, um, let us see and value things rightly. Let us see God for who He is. Holy, almighty, beautiful, and worthy. And ourselves as redeemed, loved, righteous, By the blood of Christ. We too are worthy. If God loves us, what does that tell us? We are worthy of love. We have innate self-worth. I'll just read, um, just to close, I'll read the verse one more time. Let it just sink in. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. All right. um, I'd like for us to respond to this message.